we are seeing that we're losing this battle. In the AI race against communist China, the U.S. companies are leading against China, but we do not have access to that technology. So that puts us behind. If we stopped overclassifying information, they might see pretty quickly that it's going to become a real problem, even to their day-to-day -day lives. Today, I sit down with Nicholas Chelon, who recently resigned from his position as the chief software officer of the U.S. Air Force. By 10 years, it will be too late to fix it. This is what's criminal. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Jan Jekielek. Nicolas Chelon, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thanks for having me. So, Nicolas, you recently resigned from the Air Force, um, where you were the chief software officer. The first time this role has existed, I'm going to want to find out how that actually came about. Before we start, the true story here: Why did you leave? So first of all, I'd like to thank the men and women who have served our great country and are serving our great country, uh, fighting for our freedoms. I think it's uh, essential to keep in mind that I was serving them. And that's really the focus of my time in the department, to ensure that we are addressing the issues we're facing. We have seen tremendous success in the last three years, but only pockets of success. And while I've been hearing the Pentagon leader say the right things, I've yet to effectively see them walk the, the talk. And so that's been uh, challenging because what you see instead is a lack of urgency, but also uh, a lack of uh, adoption of agile and tremendous waste of taxpayer money, but also uh, U.S. companies that are not willing to partner with the United States. Meanwhile, uh, China is taking off, leading the, the pace by mandating their companies to uh, partner with them. Uh, at some point, I had no choice but to raise the alarm because we're seeing that we're losing this battle. Okay, so this is, this is you raised so many things here that we're going to have to hit on. You know, for example, the civil-military fusion that the Chinese regime uh, mandates, basically, right, throughout, throughout its system. Yes. But let, let's, let's go back to what's happening here in the U.S., okay? Now, it's been said, right, in a headline recently, that you believe that the U.S. has already lost the war on AI. So we, I don't believe that we have lost. What I said is that if we don't act now and don't wake up right away and not in five to ten years from now, unlike some, some of the Pentagon reports are saying, but if we don't take a stand now and take action, we have no fighting chance in succeeding uh, 10 to 15 years from now because um, with AI, the velocity of adoption of AI compounds over time. And so effectively, you're going to be at a situation at some point where you pass the point of no return. You will not be able to catch up. So um, when we say we have 10 years, or when we say in 10 years, China is going to be leading, first of all, it's wrong because China is leading right now. They're already leading in many of those fields because of the adoption uh, of the technology from their companies. Uh, that's the difference when you compare with the U.S. side, where really at the end of the day, uh, the U.S. companies are leading against China, but we do not have access to that technology. So that puts us behind because effectively we're left uh, not being able to partner and competing at the same time with a massive country with 1.5 billion people that are not waiting for us to wake up. Well, a country that also likes to 
steal a lot of technology, especially, you know, technology which can be found online in some way in the cloud. Uh, you know, there's there's constant reports of Chinese regime hacking efforts, very successful efforts. We know, for example, that parts of the you know next generation fighter plane were obtained uh, by by China. There's many many examples of this. Let's start here. AI. What is AI and how does it play into the Department of Defense and the military and why is it important and why is this particular issue so paramount? So artificial intelligence is going to be what is going to make or break us in the next years to come. Uh, because effectively what AI can do is uh, making decisions for you, accelerating the access to information, coming to conclusions that the human brain cannot even comprehend. It can also uh, drastically automate access to data and, and tracking data and, and, and being used to, for example, uh, track satellite imagery so we can detect objects and what's going on, which can potentially prevent loss of lives. We've seen it recently in Afghanistan. Potentially with better AI, we could have recognized that inside this car was seven kids and, and you could have known that proactively through automation. So, so effectively, it enables us to do much more uh, by adopting artificial intelligence at scale across industries and you see it across, uh, around us everywhere from text-to-speech when you can speak to your phone like Siri or, or Amazon and, and tell Alexa you know wh what you want to uh, what you want to eat for dinner and it's going to propose different locations right all the, these technologies are driven and based on AI and without AI they could not exist and so AI allows us to make decisions faster, but it's a lot more than that, isn't it? Yes. You can also take an example where recently we have uh, a challenge with DARPA, uh, which is the, the Defense Research Lab, where uh, we demonstrated that we could um, uh, have a dogfight, right? So two jet fighters fighting together and have one of the jets uh, completely flown by AI and the other by the best Air Force pilot. And every single time the, the human lost. Um, and, and that's, I would argue, is not even the most advanced AI capability that there is on the planet. So it's going to change drastically the way we think, we do business, the way we even build weapons. Because effectively, if you know that um, those jet fighters will not be able to compete, what's the point in even investing more into the fifth generation fighters or sixth generation fighter when you have to drastically rethink the way you're going to design them, man them, train people to use them? And what really the, the, the end goal of these capabilities, particularly also when you start combining cybersecurity to it with cyber offense, where you can take an entire grid system or an entire system down without even leaving your, your living room. You're saying you had a fully automated AI-driven driven jet fighter beat the equivalent jet fighter manned by a human being every single time, every single test. That's correct. Um, yeah, that... For a lot of us, I think that's still the realm of science fiction, mm -hmm. but it's not. It's not. Why are you so sure that the Chinese Communist Party is ahead of the U.S. right now in terms of AI development? So I can t tell you we could change this by ensuring that the U.S. companies partner more with the Department of Defense. But by not being able to do that, Effectively, what we guarantee is that you know these Chinese companies have no choice but to work with the CCP. 
and effectively what you end up having is a situation where they get so much data. First, you're facing 1.5 billion people. So by definition, already based on numbers, you already are losing, right? Because they have more data and AI is, an, is, is a data game, right? The more data, the more access to data, the more you can uh, leverage rapid prototyping and rapid delivery of capabilities, right? And that's the other piece with uh, the cycle, right? AI learns upon itself. So the more you can deploy it rapidly, the more you can learn, the more it's gonna be able to uh, accelerate its learning. And that's why time compounds and is exponential. And at some point you look back and you just have no ability to catch up. You're basically saying that the amount of available data to the system that's doing the learning is actually incredibly important to the speed at which it learns and uh, basically to its effectiveness. Yeah, and you see it with a US example like Tesla, right? The, the fleet that we have with these cars on the street is how the system gets better uh, weeks after weeks. And being able to send over the air update every two weeks allows Tesla to accelerate its learning, get better at it, and try new features, try new, a better algorithm, see what works, see what doesn't work, uh, try with a subset of the fleet, try with 5% of the fleet, a new version, 5% with another version, see which one sticks. So the more um, uh, end users and the more data you get, the better the system becomes, and so it's exponential. So, and why for these military application AIs, right, is the number of people available or the number of people's data available so important? Because effectively, um, to improve accuracy of the AI model, it's all about volume of data. So the more data you have, the more accurate and precise and effective this AI capability will be in making decisions, in detecting objects, in recognizing my French accent when I talk to Alexa. Right? All these things is effectively driven through that automation. And so, um, you know, despite the fact that the United States is spending more money than many other nations combined in defense, what we, we fail to recognize is that I would argue when you compare what it costs to do the same capability on the commercial side, and I spent 20 years on the commercial side before joining the Department of Defense, and I, when I was estimating work, I would have to multiply by 10 the cost in DOD uh, because often that's just the way it costs to do business in the department. So effectively, when you spend a dollar, you get 10 cents of value, right? That you would get on the commercial side. So we're saying we're spending more money, but are we spending it wisely, effectively? Are we agile enough? Is our acquisition process broken? If we don't adopt agile methodologies that are 22 years old, I started at 15, 22 years ago, and I was implementing Agile at the time. And the US government has no Agile training to this day mandated for our acquisition workforce. Well, and, and this is very interesting. So tell us, explain to us what Agile means for the layperson. So Agile is what allows you to uh, become more efficient and be, be able to deliver continuous value incrementally not having to follow this five-year cycle process where you plan for some things, you have requirements, you uh, plan it, and then you execute for multiple years before the, the capability comes to life in the hands of the warfighter or your end user. By adopting Agile, what you do instead is you uh, continuously deliver value, small incremental piece of value, so you can validate that what you're building makes sense for your customers, or the warfighter in my case, so they can test it, they can see if it makes sense, you can 
prioritize features. You can, every two weeks, decide that, hey, this feature is more important than this feature, so you can prioritize your work. You can be more efficient. So you end up effectively never being in a situation where you end up waiting five years all to learn that the billion dollar of taxpayer money was wasted because what we were building was built in a vacuum. That's really interesting. So this, I mean, it's a completely different philosophy of development, basically, like diametrically different. Yes. Yeah. But it has to be done thoughtfully because there's no like, you know, shipping at 80% here. Like you have to actually have something that functions if, as you said, warfighters are going to be using this. It's just that what the initial product is just going to be a piece, perhaps, of the final product. Correct. Is that the idea? It, it, and that's also the big difference, right? You look at a SpaceX, right? SpaceX has 200 employees. You compare with F-35 that has 4,000 devel 200 developers and, and 4,000 developers with uh, F-35. Uh, SpaceX reuses 80% of, of its code across the nine platforms of SpaceX. So it's Lego blocks, it's modular, it's pieces of a puzzle. A platform, a new rocket, is never built from scratch. So the software is reused across, and, and they can reuse pieces of these Lego blocks and put together a new platform just by swapping Lego blocks and trying different things. If you compare that with F-22 and F-35, F-22 F and F-35 are sharing 4% of the code base, 4%. There's no reuse, despite both of them being built by the same company, right? And that leads us to effectively being into what we call a monolithic architecture, right? It's very difficult to update. You're very much locked into this entire uh, system. You can cut it. You can reuse pieces. If you take a sensor on a jet, the same sensor could potentially be used on the ship, right? But that sensor effectively is built in a way that's so tied up to the system that you cannot do that today. If you were to build it right, like we do now with some of the initiative I pushed, you could actually cut the systems into pieces and start delivering these Lego blocks, mm. right, and share across services. There's a drastic waste of taxpayer money by not enabling reuse across the Air Force, the Navy, and the Army, where you see, um, often because of egos, honestly, and, and bureaucracy and silos, where um, these teams are alleging that the mission is different, but IT is IT. Right, and we need to be able to reuse capabilities. Not everything is going to be the same, but if even if we were from four, from four percent to fifty, sixty, seventy percent, the the uh, um, improvement of that delivery and the ability to reuse and the cost savings associated to this will be dramatic. And that's why when I say you know we spend a uh, dollar, we get ten cent of value. That's part of the problem between the lack of agility, so we can continuously deliver value and see what sticks between the silos and the waste, the lack of training uh, and, and the lack of investment in our airmen and warfighters so we can actually improve their knowledge of agile. There is no agile training. We built it uh, during my tenure, uh, but it was not mandated. The mandated training is still the legacy training. So, you know, Something that strikes me here is, you know, the, the, the huge value of having these uh, collaborations with industry, right? But something that stri strikes me is that, you know, you look at some of the really big, the tech giants, you know, Google, Facebook, um, to, you know, Amazon, I guess, would be another one. Um, the culture and the kind of, I guess, the outlook of the folks in these organizations strike me as really, really different from DOD, mm -hmm. from the military. How can that work together? 
Well, first of all, I think if we stopped overclassifying information and we were able to share more what we see with some of these companies so they understand, they understand the threat and they understand what we're facing, I think there is a real opportunity for them to proactively be willing to engage and partner with us. So they need to see that, hey, their freedoms and all the freedom they enjoy today uh, are mostly driven thanks to the uh, deterrence we have, thanks to our warfighter. And if we don't have that, they might see pretty quickly that it's going to become a real problem, even to their day-to-day -day lives. So let me get this straight. Basically, you're saying if you could explain to some of the leadership of these companies, these big tech companies in the Silicon Valley, the true nature of the threat, what really is facing America. You think they would come on board voluntarily, but they just simply don't have access to that information because they're kind of living in a bit of a different world. Yeah, they don't have access to classified information. Most of these uh, companies are not cleared. The most innovative AI companies or smaller companies don't have clearances. Uh, and it's not just the leadership, right? I think it's very important to get to the people as well, because what you've seen recently with Google, even recently with the Project Maven, uh, that Google decided to not uh, extend, uh, mostly because a few co employees complained about the use of Google technology inside of uh, uh, the, the Department of Defense. Um, that's mostly because they do not understand that by making those uh, weapons more efficient, better, it's also helping at preventing uh, mistakes and saving lives. And um, you could always say, well, you know, I'm not going to help DoD and uh, maybe they're just going to stop using the weapons. That's just not going to happen, right? Life exists around you. You can't just live in your Silicon Valley bubble. You have to look at what's going on around the world, and we have to take action sometimes. And the goal, of course, is to have these capabilities as a tremendous deterrent, and we don't want to use them. But if we, have to, if we have to use them, we want them to be efficient, we want them to be very um, precise, and only technology is going to get us there. And so if we don't have access to the best of breed technologies of artificial intelligence in the, in the vision space, um, in the analytics space, data science, all these um, key experts to get us there, we, we're not going to be able to, to keep up. We're going to get behind. And we are right now, as we speak, already behind. And when I see reports, 750 pages funded government reports to tell us, and I don't know who is going to even read it, but to tell us that um, we have 10 years uh, to figure this out, when effectively by 10 years it will, it will be too late to fix it. This is what's criminal. Let's talk about the China threat here. When it comes to the Chinese Communist Party, it's actively committing at least one, if not three, by my count, personal count, genocides. We know it's antagonistic to the United States and, frankly, to freedom in general, right? It's an authoritarian system. But you're basically, you're saying the people that can help aren't fully aware of that reality. And you want to bring them on board. I, 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 want, to, I want to reiterate this again, yeah. right? Um, there's probably a lot of uh, concern about revealing certain elements of classified information uh, in this reality, especially uh, to folks who might not treat it with the respect that 
it should be treated with. I mean, this is what some people in DOD might be thinking, right? And maybe the reason for overclassification. So how do you deal with that question? Well, you have to find a balance, right? I think we can uh, easily declassify things by removing how we got to know them, uh, removing some of the details. You don't have to give all the details of the story for people to be able to grasp what's going on, right? And so I think we do a poor job also at um, uh, cutting classification um, uh, documents so that uh, maybe the entirety of the document is not classified and then you can easily extract pieces and uh, help people uh, have access to those um, pieces that, that should be enough for them to understand the threat. And, and quite honestly, um, I found many times that um, we classify things that I already knew on the commercial side and things that um, you can find on Google. Right. Um, so, so clearly we are overclassifying, no doubt. Now the, the question is is there a real threat? Some people argue right now that me talking publicly about all of this is creating what we call OPSEC, operational security risks, to the, to the United States and the DoD. I argue that if we think that it is the, the extent of knowledge and access to information of, of, a, of a country like China, we are drastically underestimating what they can do with their intelligence. It's foolish and ridiculous to even think that they wouldn't know anything I just said today, right? Uh, it makes no sense. The reality, though, what's the real fear that no one is going to be willing to say is that if people stop being able to talk about these things, then one day someone is going to have to be held accountable for making these mistakes. And, and they know that it might be them one day, right? So... By keeping things in a family, as they called it, which I did for three years, I, I kept it and I tried my best to convince everybody very nicely for three years up to the point where now we're running out of time and our kids, your kids, my kids are at risk here if we don't wake up. What is the cyber threat from China and perhaps other bad actors? Explain what that is to us. The cyber threat is tremendous, right? Um, I, I said that our cyber defense across the, the government, and not just the DOD, um, but across also criminal, uh, critical infrastructure, uh, power, water, and so on, is at the kindergarten level. And I mean it. Uh, if you compare that to the Google cybersecurity or another company, pick your, your uh, top, uh, top cybersecurity company, um, these um, uh, facilities are understaffed, underfunded. They had to connect them to internet to be able to remotely uh, manage the systems because they can't even afford to send people on site. So now we connected systems that are not designed to be connected. Uh, so you're creating a tremendous cyber risk. Um, we've seen it. We've seen countless uh, breaches around critical infrastructure. Um, including, uh, you know, recently uh, water supply chain impacted in Florida and so on, right? So, so you see this happening already. Um, and, and honestly, you know, if I'm China and I'm going to attack Taiwan one day, um, it would make a lot of sense to disable maybe some of our power. So our military will be so busy trying to make sure that we, we fix the situation in the United States that we wouldn't have to be able to have the bandwidth to even think about Taiwan. Fascinating. And really scary, 
frankly. Yeah, this is real life, right? People uh, dismiss this thing as, as if it's in the movies, but this is the life we live. And people need to sometime um, realize that this is this is what's going on around them. And that's why uh, being able to see uh, and have more insights uh, about uh, these cyber attacks and um, the extent of, of how deep uh, these uh, malicious actors can get into systems and what they can do if tomorrow they turn off, you know, an oil supply, like we've seen recently, where, by the way, the, the recent breach of the pipeline didn't even directly impact the pipeline. The company turned it off because they couldn't track, you know, consumption and billing. It didn't, they didn't actually hack the actual pipeline. Imagine if that happens one day. What happens? What if they can hack it to the point where they can make it explode? It's not just turn, turning things off. And, and, you know, we have a tremendous risk on the supply chain side where uh, all the chips, everything we buy is, is made in China. What stops them from putting malicious code into these capabilities where effectively they are dormant up to the point where they're not dormant anymore? Well, and, and I think there's been examples that we've seen where that those kinds of capabilities were discovered. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, are, we, are, are you concerned that these capabilities already exist and haven't been identified? A hundred percent. You know, I think we, we are doing very poorly when it comes to supply chain management. Um, we don't know where things are coming from, both on the software side, which, by the way, why would you even bother to um, try to tamper hardware and chips when you can just do the same with a su- software supply chain? You don't have to travel. You can push a piece of software across you know, millions of organizations. You've seen it with solar winds recently with massive breach. That's going to be the target of China now. They're going to go after companies that are providing services to hundreds of organizations. So by getting into them, including cyber companies, by the way, they're going to become the target because if you hack the cyber company defending uh, the other companies, you you have the crown jewel. You can literally see everything that's going on and get into the other systems. So they are going to become massive targets there's a lot of startup, a lot of innovation in cyber. Many of these companies are doing a very poor job with their own cybersecurity, um, despite being cyber companies. Um, and, and really, at the end of the day, um, people are not taking seriously the supply chain risk as a whole. Uh, we see cars sitting in, in lots because they're waiting chips coming from China, right? How is that acceptable? And by the way, you want to talk about AI machine learning. How do you get to AI machine learning dominance and quantum computing if you can't have the most advanced uh, chips. It's all driven based on compute and access to the most advanced capabilities. If you're building stuff overseas, who is to to know that they're not stealing the IP we're sending them? How is that even acceptable? Yeah, the most advanced uh, development from what I understand of these chips right now is in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. So that's another another pretty profound national security question. Mm -hmm. So... Let me get this straight. Are you suggesting that some of these supply chains should be repatriated? 100%. Without a doubt. We should never have let them leave. What are the highest priorities in your mind? Anything that has to do with uh, the most advanced uh, chips and um, when it comes to... um, also, the, the software side of the house, we need to really, and that was part of the uh, President's Cyber Ex- Executive Order recently signed by President Biden, um, there's a, a, big, a big push to start tracking the software supply chain. And um, keep in mind, when you buy a piece of software, that software comes with dependencies coming from other companies, open source uh, projects, and these projects can be uh, impacted by 
uh, malicious actors. Um, China is uh, infiltrating some of these projects, uh, having contributors that are contributing code for years and people paying less attention to what they do to the point where they can potentially inject malicious code into the system. And keep in mind, uh, we have tools to be able to scan code, but it's designed mostly to scan bad code, meaning a developer that made mistakes, right? Quality issues, not so much malicious code. Uh, so malicious in behavior, you know, we have concept called a time bomb in software where that software can be triggered um, based on the date or based on the specific event to trigger itself to explode the system or turn off all the software in the system. All these triggers are very alarming to me and could be dormant for years until um, you know the bad actor decides to push the button and say that's it you know it is time for us to activate this okay so this is very interesting so basically you're you're suggesting that you want to have a lot more cooperation kind of between units but trusted units mm -hmm. so keep the ones the untrusted units out outside of the system but develop a broad trusted system is that the idea? Yeah, and, and you know we also have to pay attention to who is working for some of these companies, right? Um, and the fact is, uh, the the Chinese Communist Party is certainly sending a lot of people to our universities and to our most innovative companies, and there is a very big risk of exfiltration of data from within. Insider threat is probably the most uh, underestimated threat of all these uh, you know, top organizations on the commercial side. Well, so and I, I want to comment on that a little bit because even the w most well-meaning people that will come over, let's say from China, they're still under the auspices of the Chinese Communist Party. The Chinese Communist Party can put pressure on their families, can put pressure if, they're, if they happen to end up in a situation that the Chinese Communist Party is interested in. The Chinese Communist Party always has this supremacy over every aspect of society. And it's just, it still is sort of shocking to me that people don't understand this. Like, we're not necessarily talking about James Bond type spies being sent over, although I'm sure there's some of those, right? But it's more just like simple, everyday people who are, could at any moment be required to cooperate at threat to, at pretty significant threat to their person or their family and so forth. It's a real issue and, and there's not many solutions, right? You don't want to start saying we're not going to uh, allow these people to contribute to society. We need those talents, you know, if they're willing ready to, to come and make a difference, um, they can actually be great assets too by providing more insights about um, their countries. Um, and so I think the solution will have to deal with how do we help them bring their family and try to remove these uh, dependencies or these um, uh, kind of uh, side effects, risks that could be spreading rapidly. And so you have to be proactive. It, it is not a simple, like you said, for, for every, everybody, everyday people, you can do that for everybody. Um, and and at, at some point it's, it's, it's a gamble, but, but you know, there's uh, it, it, more, more risk not doing it sometimes than doing it. You know, people say, you know, um, with DevSecOps in the Department of Defense, for example, DevSecOps is this concept of continuous delivery and automation, ruthless automation. You want to automate testing and scanning and, and all the um, nuclear surety, uh, all the assessment we do so humans can focus on the more advanced stuff and the, the, the more basic principles can be completely automated so we accelerate the delivery of software multiple times a day. Um, and so these 
concept around DevSecOps re-enable uh, that ruthless automation, so removing, including removing humans from these processes, so they, 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 they are not part of the risk anymore, right? So there are a lot of things that automation and AI can help mm. to mitigate in, ter- in terms of threat, including potentially detecting the kind of malicious behavior uh, by monitoring, you know, uh, what these employees do inside of the system to see if they're doing things that are malicious in nature. So really the AI, again, is again the answer here to proactively detect things that are going on. Incredibly fascinating. And something struck me a little bit earlier, actually. You know, if some of these big tech giants are n- that have, you know, some of the most advanced capability that they've developed, for example, around security, which you mentioned, if they're not ready to work on, for example, you know, war fighting equipment or software or something like that, perhaps they'd be willing to work on, you know, basically helping uh, DOD maximize its own re- security realities. Yeah, and, and keep in mind, um, you know, there's cyber defense, right? There's cyber offense, cyber defense. Cyber defense, I think every, everybody would agree that we need to protect our systems. But keep in mind also that uh, AI models, AI capabilities can actually be reused for different things, right? You train it with different data. You can take something that's used on the commercial side, which is exactly what China does, right? You take self-driving cars and you can t- turn it into self-driving, self-flying jets, mm. Right. Um, so there are, I mean, there are tweaks and things, but, but the models are, are often you know, very similar. So you can find a way to access technology and, and, and do things without um, really having everybody to be part of the engagement. So just access to the technology, right? Google uh, responded to my comment when I said, you know, we have companies like Google that don't want to do business with DoD, and they said, you know, we. Um, and I can quote them, but uh, they, they pretty much said that they have contract with DoD, which is true. Uh, those contracts are mostly on the business side of DoD. What we mean by that is the the management of people and, and our business systems. It is not Google on the Docs, web, for example. Right. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. It's, it's certainly yeah. not on the weapon side, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's the difference. Is you know, and they, they even ended the statement saying it has to follow the the company value and, and terms and conditions. And but the terms are clear. Uh, you you know you, you cannot um, do use those capabilities to do any harm. Well, a weapon is going to create some harm for for the wrong people for the right the right targets, and, and that's the way it's designed. So by definition, we can use it for weapons, which is what we need it for. Um, so it's it's just foolish to say we have contract with DoD when you know very much that you're not having contracts on the weapon side of DoD, which is why we're here. We're not here to do business and manage people that are not doing weapons. Those people are here to do weapons. We we wouldn't need the people there if we were not building weapons, right? So that's a, that's a reason why we exist. To me, TikTok is kind of this massive elephant in the room. I mean, basically, I, I see it advertising on Twitter all the time, right? Um, we've talked about how every company in, based in China is subordinate to the Chinese regime, 100%, right? You and I have both seen, I think many viewers have seen the Social Dilemma film. We know the level of uh, you know fine-grained information that a social media company gets on its users. I mean, it, how is... TikTok not a massive intelligence operation for the benefit of the CCP, you know, creating individual profiles on millions of Americans and just kind of in plain sight. 
Yeah, absolutely. It is. And that's why it should be banned. I have no doubt uh, TikTok should be banned in the United States and in Europe. Uh, it is used actively as a weapon, uh, intelligence weapon. Um, it can see, and people don't understand the breadth of the the capabilities around AI, but, but first of all, it gets tremendous access to your phone. So it sees your pictures, videos, and your geolocation, and, and a lot of different things about you. But then it's also able to um, see what's inside of the, these pictures and be able to recognize objects behind you. If you walk, if you walk around, you can you can be in your in your room. They can see what books you read. They can see what you have in the room. They can look at your mood. They can even track your mood when you when you interact with with, with those videos. So they, they, there's a lot of intelligence around this, and this can be used for also as a as a weapon of misinformation where they can promote content, they can track content. The latest valuation of TikTok is 450 billion, um, which grew drastically in the last six months. The uh, people dismiss TikTok as a teenager app, which is absolutely not true. You have a, a massive volume of adults now. It's used by countless companies for their marketing. Um, it's uh, it's an adver uh, advertising uh, tool for many companies, and they let again th their profits and the, the 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 interest of getting more customers, getting in the way of of common sense. So you, you've seen President Trump try to ban TikTok. Of course, that didn't really work out, and um, you could you could imagine a world where uh, companies like Apple and Google are proactively banning it. Of course, kids will get upset, but they should get over it, and that will be the what's best for the nation. Well, you know, kids and these adults and these advertisers, I mean, it's become, it's just become such a, almost like a fixture very rapidly. Yeah, but there would be other options, you know, like any anything in life, uh, we move on to whatever is next. And, you know, there's, we, we talked about this a little bit, but there's these, the social media have these kinds of addictive properties, right? And we've seen in some of the recent whistleblower testimony that some of the sort of harms can well be known and still exist. So in the hands of the Chinese Communist Party, it, it frankly creates a very scary proposition. It compounds the problem, you know. It's already a privacy concern. It's already a, uh, something we have in mind right now in the United States. But it's even worse if it's not made in the United States. So guess what? If, you know, if, if TikTok ends up being banned and we have to replace it by something else, at least let's make sure that's a uni United States-based uh, company. Is DOD looking at TikTok, to your knowledge? Not that I'm aware of. Fascinating. I mean, you, well, one would think they would be looking very closely at it. So, you know, during your tenure, some things were accomplished. You laid out some of those things in uh, the letter you put out in September explaining that you're going to be resigning. Um, so what would you say were the most significant contributions that the DOD can build or that the Air Force can build on now? Well, first of all, we demonstrated that a small group of people can drastically impact change in the department. And that's a behemoth. And, and, and if you can't do it, uh, and you can demonstrate you can do it with weapon systems. Uh, we, we took the, the F-16 and the U-2 jets, and we were able to deploy advanced um, uh, agile capabilities and AI machine learning on the jet in 12 days, fly the jet, um, show that the the AI could help the pilot make decisions and manage the sensors of the jet, receive over-the-air update like Tesla does where you get an update uh, directly on the jet while flying the jet without impacting the airworthiness of the aircraft and uh, the, the, the safety uh, of the people on board. 
all that in 12 days. And we build this capability, we open source it to the world. A lot of people can now reuse this. We see five nations using it. We see dozens of other federal agencies using it. It's probably the biggest contribution back to open source from the US government. This capability now can be used at scale. It's built as an enterprise service. It's actually used today by all branches of the government. Um, it's it's uh, designed to be um, effectively modular and flexible and abstracting us from getting locked into a to a cloud provider or to a specific company. So we have different options and diversity of options. And so when you lead the way and you can show people that, hey, we can do this with a 60-year-old aircraft on legacy hardware. If you can do that, you can pretty much do anything you want. So let me get this straight. This system that you're saying has been deployed, you know, is it throughout the DOD? So it's been deployed, um, yeah, with dozens this, of agencies. This is basically uh, kind of like a platform that you used in those 12 days to create this technology to run these 60-year-old air yes. aircraft. Yes. It's, it's designed to orchestrate the entire cybersecurity stack we have because you can just activate and enable over-the-air update and hope for the best, right? That's why you get hacked. If someone compromised your updating system remotely, you can imagine the damages you could have. And so the entire stack we built is the foundation of cybersecurity. We call it Zero Trust. That's been mandated just recently with the president by the Cyber Executive Order. We were the first and only agency that were fully compliant with the mandate before it was even written. Uh, that's work we've done in two years, part of the Platform One team that I founded, uh, part of my uh, job as uh, the CSO. And Platform One is now used across the government, but also, of course, across DOD to enable first the, the cybersecurity stack, the ability to uh, run uh, these Lego blocks on top of it, so you get artificial intelligence, but you also get sensors, you can get different mission software capabilities on top of it. So you can now become modular. That's the first step to being agile, right? Because now, you know, building this monolithic system, you can cut it into pieces and you can be more agile, more flexible. You can try things out. You can swap Lego blocks when it doesn't work out. So you're not stuck in time. You can uh, try new things. And so back to your point, you know, you can deliver a product um, that's not fully finished, well, if you start being more modular uh, and more flexible like that and you enable reuse of these uh, Lego blocks, we call it containers, we have 900 containers that were brought in uh, through uh, Platform One uh, from industry, so commercial products, open source products, and we have thousands of these uh, Lego blocks built within the DoD with DoD software that can now be shared across DoD to enable that reuse of code and that, that, that agility is not mandated to be used. That's part of the problem. It's like I said, we had great, great success of pockets uh, across, across the department. It was never scaled to become the norm. And when I've been pushing for the last two years is really to raise that sense of urgency that we have to stop the waste of taxpayer money. We have to do better when it comes to delivering value. We have to mandate these new agile concepts. And to this day, even for new programs that start tomorrow, this is not mandated today by the Department of Defense. Well, something you mentioned is incredibly important here, um, the zero trust. Mm -hmm. And explain to me in the, sim the simplest terms, mm -hmm. <laughs> what that means and why it's important and why, you know, even for that reason, mandating might make sense. 
Yeah, I completely agree that mandating zero trust is essential for national security. Uh, effectively, what zero trust is, is moving away from the traditional model of firewalls. And back in the day, you would uh, build a wall around your system. It will be a very thick wall. You don't want people to get in, right, into your, your building, whatever it is you're protecting, uh, virtually, of course, right? And uh, the difference, uh, of course, is when we start to have mobile devices and cloud, what, what's the wall? Where, where is the wall? It, it can be around your mobile, around all these things, so it doesn't scale and doesn't work. And worse, if someone gets into your mobile device, maybe because of a malware you downloaded from some employee in your, in your team, now they're inside the system and they're fully trusted to what we call laterally move, move across the system to find your crown jewel, exfiltrate your data, right, and do malicious arm at that point across your system. That's the traditional parameter model. The new zero trust model is to say, we don't trust anything. Whether you're inside the system, not inside you, we validate everything, we, we make sure that everything is where it needs to be. We're gonna assess the security of your device. We're gonna look at the who you are, as an individual, are you using you know, uh, multi-factor authentication so you need to type your PIN and, and your code to get into the system? Um, so all these different things give you a level of trust to then get access to what you're supposed to see. So if you're not supposed to have access to healthcare data uh, in your organization because that's not your job, you don't get to see it, right? And so it's very granular, very precise. It's called micro-segmentation. So you can cut your network into pieces. Again, back to the Lego block concept, with this concept, you can now say this Lego block can talk to this Lego block, but it cannot talk to this Lego block. So if a malicious actor gets into the system, that limits the attack surface. They cannot laterally move between the, the other Lego blocks, so it's going to be harder for them to uh, get to crown jewels. And basically, if one piece of the system is compromised, that doesn't mean the whole thing is. Exactly. And frankly, you know, a lot of the sort of big issues that we've had in terms of hacking have been that, you know, one little piece was compromised exactly. and then the, the whole system was open and a whole mm -hmm. bunch of data, to use your term, was exfiltrated. Yes, spot on. Yeah. yeah, that's exactly what happened. So, you know, it just seemed like it's kind of shocking that th this type of zero trust approach wouldn't be used in, frankly, every aspect of development, never mind in the, just in the DoD, but especially in the DoD. Yeah, particularly, you know, when I started at DHS five years ago, I was the chief architect at DHS before joining the DoD. I pushed your trust uh, five years ago to the Department of Defense, uh, to DHS, and uh, the leadership at DHS said, you know, they didn't want your trust at the time. And so we, we walked without deploying zero trust, um, which was best of breed already on, you know, on the commercial side five years ago. And so DHS said no. And DHS is um, also here to secure all critical infrastructure, all water, you know, power, which are tremendous targets uh, from Russia, China, and so on. And so uh, it's borderline criminal, you know, for people to dismiss it at the time. And so I left, I went to DOD, uh, where, you know, they understood the importance of all this. And like I said, I, I hear all the senior leaders say the right things. Everybody agrees, right? There is no, I was, I was never sitting in meetings where people were saying things that were completely insane, that never happened. But unfortunately, when it was time to take action and mandate things or, you know, people are so afraid now of mandating the wrong things, mm. even when it's obvious to everybody in the room and no one is even pushing back, that, that no one is even willing to do it. And so we were stuck in time where, you know, because some people were concerned with legacy systems to have to mandate zero trust and have to mandate the implementation of, of agile practices, that they wouldn't even do it for new programs. And that's, that's really concerning. 
Our team reached out to the Department of Homeland Security, but we did not immediately receive a response. There seems to be an almost pathological need or compulsion for leadership, for people in positions of responsibility uh, to avoid having to take responsibility. Uh, that I, I'm, I'm just this is this is from many conversations I've had. Um, it, so is this the kind of thing that you're saying is you see? Well, you know, I think that the issue is there is no reward for taking risks. You know, on, on the commercial side, you do good, you get bonuses, you get uh, credit, right? In the government, it's actually safer not to take it, right? Because you have more chance of rising up if you don't make noise. Even if you end up having a, a large program that fails, the, the duty bubble is designed to, first of all, prevent people like me to come into the system. Very difficult to get a clearance, very difficult to uh, get into the system. I had to divest a lot of uh, stock, and, and including after being in the job where they told me I have 24 hours to sell stock overnight where I lose, you know, a lot of money overnight with no notice, right? All these things is, is designed so people effectively wouldn't want to do what I did, right? And on top of it, you end up with people that are used to working in the government. When they leave the government, they're going to go work for the defense industrial base, and which is the same bubble. And if they come back, they will come back with the same knowledge. They have never been outside of the DOD bubble. They don't know what's going on. They don't know the velocity of work in a company like a, a SpaceX or Google, where their head would explode, literally. Um, and, and look, we, we even have a, an exchange program where we send you know majors and so on to these companies, uh, which was a great idea. But what they again, they, what they missed is that if you're going to send these people to see the light and you bring them back into the same system and you're willing to take action to address the issues they see, all that it's going to do is push them to leave, which all these people end up co coming back, get more frustrated because now they see what normal is and, and they end up leaving because they can't take it anymore, right? So we have a massive retention problem. So, so back to your you know, leadership uh, issue is really at the end of the day, if there's no benefit to taking risks, uh, both for their career and you know, uh, for their advancement within the, 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 the department, then it's just safer not to do it. Because the risk basically is, if, if you fail, uh, you're not gonna, you might not get that promotion. Right. But if you just kind of go along, you'll, you'll just naturally kind of flow to the next, next natural position. Yeah, and of course, I mean, you, you've seen it even recently, right? There's no one held accountable when, when something goes wrong, right? Effectively, uh, when, it's, when something is gonna go wrong, it's gonna be most likely classified and we can talk about it. And if that happens, then, you know, there's programs that have been wasting billions of taxpayer money every year or, and, and even be revamped and waste again uh, taxpayer money again and again uh, from travel to basic business things to Jedi with uh, the cloud uh, contract with DoD, which was a complete debacle for three years because they only wanted to do a single world with a single cloud provider. All these things effectively happen and most people can talk about it and then, you know, um, no one is held accountable. You've seen the, the recent award of uh, GBSD, which is all the replacement of all the nuclear uh, ground uh, work, uh, replacing all the nuclear missiles in the ground uh, across the nation. And we have a very limited amount of years to do it. A lot of pressure to do it because every time if we don't do it we're losing the existing missiles so we have to deliver this for just for deterrence even if people don't agree with nuclear right we need the deterrence right and you only add one bidder to that contract right so 
how is that good for the taxpayer? How is that good for the government to negotiate the, the right deal? So it happens, you know, the, the company that won the award was willing and eager to make this work. And we managed to pull this together, which was awesome. And they've done a great job adopting Agile for this program. And they were the first one to adopt Platform One and help us scale. Um, but at the same time, should we be in a situation where we have only one bidder for multi-bidding program, one of the largest DoD program on the planet, uh, that's probably not healthy. At the at one of the highest levels of security required. <laughs> the the high the highest, <laughs> yes. As we finish up here, um, where would you like to see things go for DoD? Well, first of all, I'd like to make sure that we empower our warfighter, we train them, we invest in them, and we empower the lowest level to make this happen for us. We have uh, tremendously bright people. They can, they can do this, they can make this happen. We have to be able to communicate better with industry, and industry is not just a duty bubble. It's a broader industry. It's all the U.S. companies, startups, to join us in the fight. We have to share this knowledge. We have to be able to raise awareness. But what's very important is we have to stop funding reports. We have to ask Congress to stop continuously going back to DOD and uh, asking the department to invest more money writing uh, reports. We need actions. We need outcomes. We need tangible value uh, to the warfighter. Um, and that would take effectively uh, ag agile to become the norm. It's going to take uh, proper training. It's going to take partnership with industry, and it's going to take scale. It's going to take um, a, a real urgency, and we need to stop being complacent and having reports that tell us we have ten years to figure this out. Because by ten years, it will be too late to fix it. Do you regret at all? You know. At this moment, you know, you're out. Do you regret at all having made that decision? I always feel like I could have done more and better, right? And and you always think back and want to improve. And, and I don't regret leaving because I was at a point where it was not healthy for me. It was, I was not able to impact enough. And it was frustrating to talk about the same problems every day of the week when we had the solutions and I had the solutions and we couldn't implement it. Um, so I was at a point where we proved we could do it, we did it, and yet we didn't see actions to make it happen at broader scale, so it was really frustrating. Um, and, and so by leaving now, I can actually be more efficient on the outside to raise awareness, but also uh, potentially you know, uh, make sure that we empower the right people to make this happen. I will never go back and sell um, things to the department. I, I despise when people do that. I will not be doing that. I will be uh, always very eager not to benefit personally from any of this, um, but I will really make sure that uh, we wake up before it's too late for our kids. Well, Nicolas Chelon, it's such a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Our team reached out to the Department of Defense, but we did not immediately receive a response. 